You're listening to Two Sides of Phi, a podcast that follows two lifelong friends as they seek financial independence and to retire early. I'm Eric, and I'm joined by my friend Jason, who reached Phi in 2020. And this is our story. All right, Jay, we're talking about cash again. That's one of our more popular episodes, this uh, holding cash episode that we released recently. Yeah. And um, it's kind of no surprise, actually, because cash is a big topic. Re- you know, inflation is up. Totally. Interest rates are rising. We have the big Fed meeting uh, this week, right? It's, yep. uh, it's what, Tuesday, the uh, 20th of September, as we record right. this. And so lots of things going on. Markets are taking a hit again. Doing whatever they do. <laughs> You're not looking at it, I know, but I am. No, I keep hearing about it from other people, which is, <laughs> is super cool because I try not to look at it. But yeah, yeah. it's doing its thing. I'm going to be honest, though. I, I haven't looked at it maybe in a month. <laughs> nice. I love that. So yeah, I just had to kind of check out. I'm finally uh, taking your advice to heart. So I thought it'd be an interesting idea to maybe uh, revisit the cash discussion in light of all the comments that we received on that video. Um, so if people are just listening to this in podcast form, uh, we actually have a YouTube channel and people leave some amazing comments on the YouTube videos. And I, yeah. I, I was pretty um, psyched about some of them and I kind of wanted to talk them through because these are ideas that neither you nor I had, I think, about um, holding cash, some interesting positions. Um, the, the first thing that I wanted to touch on was there's, there is a pretty big difference with respect to holding cash for someone who's in the accumulation phase, like me, versus someone who's in the drawdown phase, like you. Yeah, um, 100%. Yeah. And I think that, you know, while, I don't know, for us, it's easy to sit here and assume people know our backstory and where right. we are. And, you know, we put the date, our FI date on the screen, but not everybody does realize that we're at different points in time. And that does clearly drive some of the comments we get. Exactly. Yeah, I, I one stood out to me. This was made by Garrett. Uh, he says, you laugh because his cash is losing out to inflation. But how is the stock market doing this year in comparison? You know, that really did highlight for me. It's like, well, as someone in the accumulation phase, I actually want the market to, to be tanking right now as I continue to dollar cost average into it. I keep making weekly buys, uh, whereas you have a very, very different uh, position with respect to cash. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd be first of all for the market. I'd be totally happy if it just stayed, uh, you know, flat or uh, you know, continue to increase. That sounds great right. uh, because then. Well, I would uh, too. Yeah, yeah the poor, yeah, I, I think we'd both be happy about that. But <laughs> you're, you're happy on the buying side. I'm not doing so much buying. But yeah, for me, cash is different. It's a buffer between the portfolio and living today. Right. That that's how I fund our you know daily or monthly expenses are from our cash bucket. So, yeah, cash has a very important day-to-day um, use, and therefore I hold more of it, typically around two years of expenses. Yeah, totally. Someone else says, uh, oh, Andy says, uh, great conversation, guys. Eric still has an accumulation stage mindset. Wait, Just wait till you flip the switch and have to play defense on your portfolio. Less timing and opportunity and more de-risking. I love that. Like, yeah. if only we had said that during our last conversation, right? Do you you are de-risking, and I'm That's like, right. pour it on, man. Let's go. Yeah, and we've had that conversation. I, I think on one hand, I'm sure you'd be very happy to flip the switch today. I would, and uh, and be at your fine number and not have to work anymore doing architecture and associate things if you didn't want to. Right. But let's say you have flipped the switch. I mean, have you thought about what it's going to be like from a mind shift perspective to to not be sort of wired for accumulation? I have thought about it, 
And, um, you know, and, and I'm kind of trying to role play, put myself in your shoes and say, oh, okay, how would this feel right now? Because I do, I'm like, I have to prepare for it. And, and I think as we get further into this conversation, there are some kind of interesting strategies that, that people are putting in place um, that are specifically related to people in the drawdown phase, right? There yes. are certain kinds of investments I don't want to be making right now, like in bonds, right, for example, uh, because it's going to hit you know, the interest paid to me is going to basically, I'm going to owe tax on that at my current, you know, uh, marginal tax rate. Right. And that's not ideal for me, but as someone who is holding cash and watching inflation grow, you probably have a different perspective on that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not that it feels amazing to be holding bonds right now too, but as you know, I have some diversity in my fixed income portfolio too, right? You know, in addition to the treasuries, got whole bond fund, have pure cash. But yeah, I do think about it pretty differently because um, from one perspective, I know that in a rising inflation environment, you know, interest rate risk is a very real thing for both cash and bonds. But on the same note, from a capital preservation standpoint, I know that you know my bonds are not down nearly as much as my equities are, and that's you know to be expected. Yes, the the correlation is a little higher than we would like it to be. They're moving directionally the same, but it's also not down as much that bond position as is my equities, and so that feels good from a you know and when I have to sell you know at that twice annual uh, time point when I do my rebalancing. You know, there are some obvious moves I can make and they, they feel a little better than the alternative where I only have stocks to sell. Yeah. And I was actually even more specifically talking about right now, if you look at the yield curve, the yield curve is inverted, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You're holding 10 year treasuries just like I am. That's my diversifying asset in our kind of bogle, boglehead styled portfolio. Uh, but if you look at the 10 year rate and you look at the, the three month and the three year and the one year rates... Ooh, <laughs> like go look at the one year rate. It's higher than the 10 year rate. I mean, that's like the definition of an inverted yield curve, right? So yeah. it makes like when I start to look at those things and you and I didn't necessarily pick up on this when we were chatting last. Um, but if you're holding cash, doesn't it start to make sense now to maybe think about laddering in some bond positions, you know, some short term bond positions, especially as interest rates are rising? If you have a short term bond that's paying as much as a t as a 10 year treasury note, like, well, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, this is a fair point. And one of our commenters mentioned this, you yeah. know, and I think one person mentioned laddering CDs and another mentioned laddering bonds. And there's a reason that these are popular strategies. And, you know, without deep diving on the differences between them, right, CDs uh, largely trend towards shorter, whereas you can get, you know, bonds that are pretty far out. And of course, then we have the bills and the notes, the things that are shorter term, which is where you're headed. Uh, there's a reason that's really popular because to your point, you can, you know, buy a periodically, whether it's, you know, 13 week, you know, that roughly three months yep. or farther out. And yes, you're sort of taking a stand on what you think is going to happen with inflation, but you're doing it short enough term that you're not subject to that sort of term risk that, you know, in a rising interest rate environment. So yes, I have thought about it. I'm thinking about it more than ever. Have I done anything? I have not. Um, I'm yeah, still well, with my cash position and then my intermediate term uh, treasuries, you know, averaging about seven years. Um, so yeah, um, 
It's a fair question to ask me. Well, I, I, I mean, I never really thought much about these bond ladders. And just, just to kind of dig into that a little more, we have a few comments, a few people who commented on that, that that are just getting ready to transition. And they're trying to build a cash position. And that was particularly interesting to me because, you know, if you look at the definition of what a bond ladder is, it's generally between five and 10 different sort of shorter term bonds that you're buying, right. right? And the way you buy them is you buy them in at certain terms so that they're sort of separated in, you know, you can get really granular, but like, let's say yes. up to three month expiration dates. So you have one that expires in three months and one in six and nine and 12. And so you can ladder these to start paying you a fixed income that's in, right. as you enter retirement, right? That bit, that is your cash position. And you know, for sure that you're going to see all of the, the yield on that because you're just waiting the full term of that bond. And if we look at, you know, interest rates around 4% for say a 10 year, um, treasury uh, versus a one year, that's about the same. I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible. A guaranteed 4% on, uh, you know, a certain fixed amount of money, that, that's a pretty good deal. That's a, that's a sure bet, right? Backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. Right. And that's, that is an important distinction when you're talking about buying not only non-callable bonds, but things that are, you know, treasury bonds. Safe. Uh, yeah, they are safe. Uh, you know, th no, they don't have the FDIC specific protection that a CD would have up to 250,000. But you're also go going back to some comments we've had in previous episodes, right? Uh, if, if the U.S. government can't uh, pay the face value of treasuries, we have bigger problems. Yeah, yeah. So yes, safe. I mean, the, the, the one thing that gives me pause when I start thinking about, you know, I started thinking, oh, this is great for building a cash position and I should really look into this. But these instruments are paying their interest out in six months, every six months. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you are going to owe tax on those. That's right. On all that interest. And, you know, that's that's not great for someone who's still in the accumulation phase, who's, you know, potentially at a high uh, tax rate. And, you know, even though in my state, you know, the state of Maine is like an 8% income tax. So I don't have, I don't owe any state income tax on those. I still would owe federal income tax on the interest. Um, for someone like you in California, a high income tax state, right? Like that's, that's pretty, that's a pretty good advantage for you, right? Yeah. And to be fair, one thing I haven't done is actually as much as I, I am uh, managing income and, you know, capital gains, tax limits, all of those things that are very common in the withdrawal phase. I haven't sat down and done the modeling of what would the true cost be of doing, you know, bringing in other sources of income coming from these ladders. What would the tax treatment of that be versus some I, Honestly, I haven't done that math. I mean, it's funny because, and someone pointed this out in one of their comments, like it gets complicated very quickly, doesn't it? You're trying it to- It does. I, I thought it was already complicated, but yeah, that does add another layer. <laughs> it's like you're trying to manage your income for ACA subsidies, right? Because the, the yep. cliff is, I, th I believe this year, and I don't know if it's going to extend into next year. It was year. extended. Yeah. It, it was? Okay. It's been extended. I think to- two more years, if I'm not mistaken, somebody will correct me in the comments, but yeah. So, okay. That's great. Wow. I didn't realize that. It is. That. Yeah. That's, that's huge for wow, a lot of people. That is huge. Yeah. It may even affect me. <laughs> yeah. You might, might catch the front end of that or I guess the tail end. <laughs> maybe, maybe they'll just keep extending this indefinitely, but it I sounds mean, great. you're trying to manage all of these different things from a, you know, you want to still qualify for subsidies, which means your income needs to be at a certain multiplier of the federal po poverty limit. Right. And you're trying to manage income for, 
taking capital gains, maybe making Roth conversions. It's like right. this big complex puzzle. And I could see maybe for you, it's just not worth the time to manage it all. Like why do I need yeah. to add like five to 10 more different separate bonds, treasuries to, to into the whole mix and complicate this even further? Yeah. I mean, the first, the first <laughs> response I would have is it's a good problem to have, certainly not complaining, right? This is a very privileged position to be in. But the second comment is kind of harkens back to the conversation we have with Karsten, where, you know, some of these things feel, these optimizations feel like we're talking about, you know, four basis points, just yeah. to use the same number that, that he did in that episode. I haven't done the math here once again. Um, so when I did start looking at some of these alternatives for cash, this is the thing I kept butting up against. It's like, you know, why, you know, is it, is it really worth the effort? The and and maybe something. it is, <laughs> but, you know, doing the math is still part of the exercise. And as I've said probably three times now, I haven't done it. Yeah, yeah. And got to do the math. I mean, also, I think for someone in your position, it, presuming you can withstand the lockup of an I-bond, Maybe an I bond is actually just a more efficient vehicle for taming inflation and, and you know, tamping down some of these worries. Because even if you're making 4% on, you know, a, a one year treasury, inflation's still at eight, eight, eight and a half percent right now. I can't remember right. what it is, right? So still right. kind of losing out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, to your point, uh, you know, we discussed this some time ago now, but I did buy. Uh, the maximum in I bonds yeah. for myself and for my wife, Lori, by taking that out of cash reserves. Uh, so it, it is still part of my two years. But, you know, that sum of money, that $20,000 is in I bonds and, you know, can't be touched for at least a year. And yeah. even then, of course, you would be giving up three months, three months of interest. But if inflation continues and it makes sense, I would have no issue buying I bonds again because right. this is just part of that cash allocation. Yeah, and the cash allocation seems like it's something that is kind of more fluid, right? It's something you're you're analyzing, thinking about and moving things around, right? I mean, I know you have 24 months of cash that you're, you know, 24 months of living expenses covered here, but it's something that you're probably always going to be looking at until you decide that the window, you know, the the window dressing of the bucket strategy is out yeah. the window, so to speak, right? I mean, at some well, point, you're going to dis dismiss that, I presume. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I, I mean, just a, a thought occurs to me. I, I mean, part of why I'm not worrying about the, the cash and am I, is it earning as, as well as it could for me, right? Maybe it's making 2% right now, and it'll probably go up again when the Fed raises the interest rate. But I'm not worried about it because I already didn't increase my withdrawals this year for inflation. For inflation I actually yeah. stayed flat versus last year. And how I'm absorbing that and where I'm spending less or maybe I'm not being impacted as much because some of the most impacted categories like gas, I don't use nearly as much as people who are commuting, for example. But so I feel like I'm already doing a good job of managing spending on the norm. So maybe it's not worrying me as much. Honestly, I'm also trying not to worry about stuff like that. It's, it's a pretty active part of my practice to not fixate on the numbers so much that I'm worried about, oh, is, am, am I doing it? I don't know. That's just sort of how I'm handling things emotionally. So I'm not sort of nitpicking away at am I making as much as I could. I don't know if that's the right answer, but I think it's an honest one. Hey, Eric here with Two Sides of Fi, checking in with a quick request. Jason and I love making this show and sharing our conversations, but we need your help spreading the word. The best way to do that is to give us a quick rating and review on your podcast app of choice. And if you know someone on the Fi Path, please hit that share button on your favorite episode. 
Every little bit helps. Thanks. You know, the one thing I wanted to, to still kind of circle back to was this difference between accumulation and the drawdown yeah. phase. Um, because I think when we talk about having cash and building cash reserves, it naturally brings up this idea that I'm going to sit on the sidelines until this market cools off. You know, yeah. let's say it, it finds some kind of level bottom and, you know, cause we've seen a few kind of bear market rallies here, right? Yep. There's all this talk of recession, who knows what's going to happen. Being in cash feels safe to a lot of people. I get that. Um, but there's a lot of opportunity costs, especially if you're earlier in your fire journey to sitting yes. on the sidelines, right? There is. And, you know, I think the analogy we've used in the past is unless you have this giant mountain of assets far in excess of what you could see yourself spending, you are counting on your portfolio to keep generating income so that you can fund your life expenses, never mind any legacy giving that you want to do um, to family members or to charitable causes. So um, it does worry me when we get comments like, I'm sitting on 10 years of cash. Yeah. Because I start to wonder, well, are they so well off that they can afford to do that without material concern? Or in fact, is their personal risk tolerance so low that it's just it's akin to somebody who's still working and they stop investing because they're worried or they liquidate, they go to cash, right? And the opportunity cost, as so many different financial podcasts have pointed out, is tremendous. Yeah. And also, I mean, the headwind of inflation right now. Right. Yeah, it's a double whammy, I guess. <laughs> it's really bad, right? It's, it's about the worst thing you can do. So, yeah, you have to, I mean, talk about being conservative. You, you and I talked about you having your e-fund on top of your 24 months of cash, right? It's gone now. It's, you, you, <laughs> <laughs> it's gone, I promise. No more emergencies for you? No. I mean, that, but that is a fundamental difference between it is. where you are and where I am. Right. Yeah. And, you know, my son was just in an accident and, you know, we have to replace a car now. Oh, wow. And yeah. as someone who talked, I mean, when we recorded that episode, that had not happened. Right. And now we have to come up with, you know, the, the funds for car. the emergency that just happened. And, you know, I said in that episode, I have access to all these different things. And you know what? In practice, it's not as clean <laughs> as just having that pot of money set aside. And so, you know, I feel like Laura and I have, have, we've learned a little bit here. Um, and, and granted that's a fairly large expense, uh, to come yeah. up with, you know, out of nothing. And so that has its own set of challenges, but, um, you know, I don't see you as someone in the drawdown phase maintaining an emergency fund. That just doesn't really make sense to me. No. And I, I, you know, I, I, it was as much the conversation we had with Karsten yeah. kind of, as well as the, you know, the, you and I discussing subsequently, you know, this idea about the structural engineer having factors upon safety upon factors upon safety. So you end up with just the, the guard bands you put around something are so big that, um, it just sort of doesn't make sense. And, and this, you know, I don't want to judge people who are so risk averse no, because I, you know, I know. whatever, whatever happened the to their family in yeah. their past. No, I get or it. They, you know, they came from poor and that's why they choose to err on the very conservative side. But you were right in that in my case, when I looked at my financial picture, I was putting more safety on than even emotionally I required. And so just looking at it, you know, being honest about the numbers and saying, you know what, 
that's not what is needed right now. Yeah, it made sense to hold six months of expenses when I was still working because if I was suddenly out of a job, like, okay, yeah, it makes sense. But, you know, at this point, I don't think so. So two years, I feel good about. I did not need uh, 30 months worth yeah. of uh, buffer. And, and I think that was a good decision. It does. I wonder if there's some kind of an in-between in that, you know, 24 months of cash that you have where, you know, half of it is in a, in a one-year note or something like that. Mm. You know, yeah, it's like it doesn't add that much complexity to it, but it's also it's not losing as much to inflation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, there, there's there's some merit to that. And, and, you know, a number of commenters did talk about things that are that are on that sort of train of thought that could make good sense. Yeah. yeah. I feel like such a novice sometimes when I dip into the comments and people are like, you should really educate yourself on, on these long-term financial planning moves. I'm like, wow, there was one comment in there. It was, it was about four, four pages long and it went through this person's whole strategy and how they're maximizing their, you know, ACA subsidies and you oh, probably yes. know the comment. And, uh, yeah. Like, and I asked him to clarify and he did. And he did. It was next it level was stuff. He also, I think kind of made fun of me for uh, changing my asset allocation. So so it told me I should just settle on something and stick with it. Uh, just, he doesn't know me very well. No, he doesn't. You know, but your, your point's a fair one. I, I, I'm thinking of some some posts in Bogleheads where some of these people just go so deep and then someone will comment back like, oh, are you a financial advisor? And they're like, no, I'm nope. like a welder. They're like, I just love this stuff. And they have done such a good job. It's amazing. It, I mean, I love it. I learn something every time I dip into one of those threads. So Frank Vasquez says, retired, although we still have some residual income, about 12 to 18 months in cash is enough for us, 4 to 6% of overall asset allocation. But cash includes all liquid and low volatility assets, checking, savings, short-term bonds, I-bonds. I think that's that's probably true for you too, right? Yeah, I think the short-term stuff up, up to I-bonds I consider as cash. Yeah, um, but he says, uh, this is also a reason not to use total bond funds because they incorporate short-term bonds, but you can extract them or use them as cash. It's better to keep your short-term bonds in a separate fund from your intermediate and long-term ones because they function very differently in your portfolio and you want to be able to rebalance between them. I thought that was an interesting idea. I hadn't really considered yeah. that, you know, that a bond fund is an amalgamation of a whole different, uh, you know, types and, and term of bond, right? Um, you yeah. have short-term and, and longer-term ones in there. And if you're truly trying to maximize the use of short-term bonds for cash, especially in a rising interest rate environment, that's pretty smart to to consider them that way. I love that comment. Yeah, it's a really interesting comment, and I, it caused me to do some more work because honestly, when you hear people you know talking about why total bond funds maybe aren't a good idea, it's usually about a different kind of risk, right? It's about default risk because you've got corporate bonds in there, for example, and mortgage-backed securities. It's not so much uh, about duration. Um, so that was an interesting uh, idea. I mean, I guess. And maybe it's not the most mathematically sound argument, but, you know, I'm holding something like 60 percent uh, intermediate term treasury fund uh, and then 40 percent total bond fund. And I guess in my mind, that's a way to get a little exposure to potentially the upside from corporate bonds in uh, any environment other than the one we're in right now. Uh, <laughs> And maybe some, you know, mortgage related securities. But uh, yeah, I hadn't thought about it so much from the the 10 year perspective. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, we still get tons of bond comments. Why are you guys in bonds? Uh, bonds oh, yes. feel like All a, the time. somebody said bonds feel like a, a relic of the, the 20th century. Yes. Um, you know, might have worked for the Bogleheads back then, but 
why now? But they didn't give any sort of reasoning for what the diversifying asset would be. What would the ballast be in that kind of a portfolio? And I, I definitely see people waiting on the sidelines to get into bonds again, too, once interest rates are done rising. So it, the people yep. are market timing, man. <laughs> uh, they are. And I'll tell you what, you know, for all the talk about recession and potential crashes, I'm pretty happy to be not thinking about that, knowing that I've got 30 percent of my portfolio in fixed income. Yeah, buddy. You know, uh, I was going to say, I rebalanced. I went from my 70% to uh, of stock allocation to an 80%. You know, you did. I did that little selling. And I think the last time you talked, I said, is that, is that, am I just being dumb? You're like, well, I mean, <laughs> if you think you called the bottom correctly, maybe not, but uh, yeah. it depends on, you know, what your, how flexible your timeline is. And exactly. I have to say, that's what I said. Yeah. Looking I did at, not agree to dumb. Um, for no, sure. But looking at my portfolio now, it's, it's moving, it's moving a lot more than it was, you know? So oh, I, hey, yeah. if you want, if you want volatility, going more into equities is the way to do it. Yep. Totally. <laughs> it's just, what's the volatility going to look like, right? Yeah. It's certainly going to be dynamic, uh, yeah. to use your word. Somebody else asked if, if I had uh, more, uh, more diversified portfolio than like, do I have things other than just VTI? And my answer was like, that's I've got a three fund portfolio, um, but you know that's pretty well diversified, man. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you're <laughs> total you're trying, market you're holding the market. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, you... I, for some people, yeah, uh, they do uh, conflate the idea of diversity with the sheer number of funds. Yes. <laughs> as opposed to representation of market. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's real. Speaking of diversity and complexity, how do you feel about some of the comments we got? about holding complete alternatives to cash, but still talking about them having the role of cash. So maybe on the lighter side, somebody saying, you know, gold or precious metals, uh, which is not an uncommon hedge, um, but we can talk about mathematically whether that makes sense or not. But on the maybe the extreme side, in my opinion, how do you feel about holding, uh, buying real estate instead of holding cash? Oh, I thought you were going to say vintage coins or, or vintage weapons or something like that. Uh, yes, there was an individual who holds vintage weapons and flags. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I, um, I'm not looking to buy into kind of currency risk here. Um, yeah, you know, with likewise. Yeah, with respect to those. I've, I've looked at the, what is it, the golden butterfly portfolio? Like what, there are some of these very popular portfolios which have fairly large allocations of gold and precious metals there. Um, but, you know, I, I think like you believe in the long-term health and um, stability of our economy, uh, you know, a growing asset um, such as, you know, companies and corporations to me, it's, that's an investable asset that actually produces income and revenue and yep. value in the world uh, as opposed to gold which, you know, doesn't, has none of those things. Um, so I, right. I mean, how are you looking at it? Yeah. I mean, a, a couple, a couple things come to mind. The first is that, you know, when you look at any of these financial podcasts who, who candidly are far more quantitative and more skilled in these analyses than we are, the real returns over time of gold versus the S and P 500, if you look at any substantially long window, it doesn't really matter how long you're, you should be looking at equities. On the other hand, if you're interested in and it fits with your investing, you know, sort of policy statement to have 
you know, positions in some alternatives. Like I want to be 2% in gold or 4% in silver. You know, that to me, I can sort of get on board with that. It's not personally what I'm interested in. I don't have precious metals in any form, just like I don't have industry tilts in my portfolio. But that's sort of my approach. Um, I just, you know, it, it's kind of, I look at it kind of like real estate um, in that if I saw a reason that it made sense that I could get behind it, I, I then I might. But I just don't see it. I mean, it's not producing more value in the world. There's just, it's like, yeah. you know, the reason I invest in cryptocurrency is because I do feel like there's a utility to it. Like the, if I'm buying ETH, I feel like there's a future utility to that. I see a future there that yeah. has usefulness. And, right. uh, but I don't see the same with gold. Um, and, you know, real estate is, is similar too for me. And I know some people asked us about, well, is there a reason to just kind of, you know, wait for the stock market to cool down and just pop into real estate here, right. um, you know, move a large holding there? And I know people have large parts of, the, parts of their portfolio in real estate. But for me, like I own the house behind me. Like that's right. that's already a sizable tilt toward real estate in a lot of respects. Right. Like, do yeah, I well, I'm yeah, I agree. I do agree with you, Eric. And to add to that, my position is, again, if you want whether it's you have a belief that, you know, real estate investment trusts or REITs or private equity, you know, investments in real estate or rental properties are a, a good, you know, they fit your investing philosophy and they're going to, you know, generate revenue for you and that makes sense to you. Great. I don't have an issue with that. Where I do start to get concerned, and of course this isn't financial advice, but, you know, for me, I have a hard time equating an investment in real estate with cash, with saying instead of holding yeah. one year or two years or however much cash I've decided I want to hold, I'm going to just move that pile into real estate. That's a different thing entirely because the the comment I usually make back when people suggest things like that is, what is the job of this asset? And if you're having two years of cash, you know, in drawdown it's it's buffering right this is your funding your lifestyle out of this it's liquid it's accessible There's well a no lot of people would say that. it's cash flow you know, and yeah, you know, that I, is. the answer to that, I, I think is, I mean, there's a lot of concentration risk if you're buying, say, a set of apartments in, in a specific market. I mean, who knows what's yeah. going to happen to San Francisco in the next five years? I mean, you may continue to yeah. like outperform the the other markets or, you know, the returns on that investment may, may be paltry, like three or four percent as compared with somewhere in the sure. sunbelt. I mean, yeah, I don't. But. I, like you, I don't really have a problem with people wanting to do that, and plenty of people no. do. But personal uh, choice. But I know nothing about it, and I don't see myself spending time trying to educate myself to the level where I can make an informed choice about. To, yeah, I'm going to invest in Scottsdale, Arizona, versus I right. don't know Podunk, West Virginia. I'm not. I just don't know how to make those decisions. So for me, it's good enough that VTI yeah. has like a four percent real estate weighting. Right, like, that's good enough. And you said you have like a real five percent. Yeah, so you got you got to tilt somewhere, right? I have five percent in REIT, so yes, there is there is a, a sector tilt uh, in you know commercial real estate. Okay, yeah, yeah, because you it's have some small. sort of belief. Yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> cool. Yeah, I'm not going to touch it. You know, I like I think it's Rick Ferry that says this. Like, it's okay to hold five to ten percent in REITs, but you're going to hold them forever. Right. Don't make a change. Don't make a change, and I haven't. I've had that position for a long time. And I like it. I mean, I, I guess just one more comment to add on the real estate train. 
I think even if I got the bug where I thought I'm interested in making some investments in real estate, whether it's, you know, rental properties or some other form of investing in real estate other than my primary residence, I believe sitting here today talking to you that I would still hold two years in cash. Yeah. It's right. not a replacement for my cash position. Yeah, that's a good point to make. No, I appreciate that. I want to I want to talk for a moment about high yield savings accounts, which is kind of I don't know whether you agree it's a misnomer or not. Um, yielding about what two point two point one percent, two percent, yeah, two 1. to two point two, I think is what I'm seeing right now. Yeah, so at least for this week, they're they're slow to raise rates as the as the Fed bumps theirs up. But I I had a I had a pretty bad experience with a very well known high yield savings account that I kind of wanted to pass on to other people, and it's certainly may not be indicative of other people's experience, but I got the, I got the bug to try and move some money around as I was saving for my son's college. Um, cause we had some, we didn't want to draw down on the 529. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to build a cash position in a high yield savings account. And I don't want to put it at risk at all. Cause that's right. for <laughs> next semester's payment. Right. Yeah. And so I'm saving for that now. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go check the reviews. So I checked nerd wallet, nerd wallet has like oh, our top 10. You've seen them before. Right. Yeah. And the, always. Oh, highly rated. Right. So I go, um, so I choose Marcus, which is uh, by Goldman Sachs and they have a, rate right now, which is, I think it's around 2%. Yeah. And super easy to set up. I was so impressed app for your phone, make all the connections online, you know, cause there was yep. other high yield savings accounts that I've had in the past that made it really difficult. I was like, I, I want this to be frictionless. So I get in there and I start building the savings in there. And like the moment you, you initiate the transfer, the button, you know, they, you're, you're earning interest. I'm like, Oh, that's amazing. Like yeah, I don't even have good. to wait for one or two day, you know, transfer window to, to show up. And so I'm building this savings position and it gets time to transfer the money to pay for the college tuition payment, which is due on August 1st or whatever it was. And, um, so I go to initiate that payment and all goes through and, you know, like six or seven days later, um, I go to check to make sure the money has come out and it says my account has been locked. Oh geez. I have no access to it. Can't see the balance. Can't see anything. Please call us. Hey, Eric here with two sides of five. If you've been listening to Jason and I on the podcast, you may not be aware that we also have a YouTube channel and quite often we have supporting graphics, charts, information, and even a few outtakes that don't fit well in an audio format. So, if you're into that kind of thing, you can find us on YouTube at Two Sides of Phi. So they, they, Marcus starts texting me, please call us. We have an issue with your account. So I end up, make a long story short, I ended up four hours on the phone trying to what? divine where this money was. The tactic here is delay, delay, yeah. delay. They pass you from one person to the next. So with any of these high yield savings account, you know, online, you know, most of them are online, right? Like customer service is everything. And it was yeah. absolutely dreadful. Great to save. I'm happy to get that interest rate for, you know, low risk saving vehicle, but try and get the money out and forget it. You're completely hosed. So they ended up locking my account. They wouldn't tell me why they locked the account. Wow. They wouldn't tell me when I would get the money back. I needed this money to pay that bill, Jeez. which was coming due, or he was not going to be enrolled in school. And I was like out of my mind, like 
asking for even an account balance. Like, show me the account balance. I don't even know if the money is there. Yeah. I don't know where the money is. The college starts calling me. They said, your, your tuition payment is late. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, and man. we had saved everything. You know, we did everything as we thought we should do. Eventually, the money was returned from the college. They, they reneged the payment back into the Marcus account. And Marcus closed my account. And then they sent me an email saying, your money will be returned to you within 30 days. Oh, jeez. 30 days. You kidding. So, you know, I eventually get them on the phone to wire the money back into my regular bank account, which I can walk to. <laughs> right. You know, I can walk into and see that the money is there and speak to a real person. Um, it was just a nightmare experience. And I filed a Better Business Bureau complaint because it, it was so awful. That's and, terrible. And that is the time when I discovered this happens to thousands of people. Marcus, go look at the Better Business Bureau complaints for Marcus, and you'll see thousands of complaints about this very tactic. Great putting the money in. As soon as you want to draw it down, remove the money, transfer it, they'll close or lock your account. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah it is crazy. I'm, I am sorry to hear that you had to deal with that. Um, I mean, typically, you know, the, the way I think about high yield savings accounts is, you know, it's pretty boring, but uh, I'll explain it. I mean, I get that, they, you know, there are teaser rates, right, where it's only up to the first certain amount of money. And then after that, it's a more traditional rate. That doesn't sound very interesting. I know that there are people that like to optimize that. by They use multiple accounts up to those amounts. I mean, to me, that sounds like spending dollars of your time to make pennies. So I'm definitely not going to do that. So the strategy I took on many years ago now was to find uh, a good bank. You know, it's an online only bank, but a good bank that offered near the top of the interest rate, but still had good customer service. And, you know, I didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. So yes, uh, were they paying 2% when others are paying 2.2? Yeah, that happens, but I've been really satisfied. So, but yeah, have you I had to remove the money? I have. Yeah. It's okay. my, it's my regular bank. Okay. So basically what I did is I located my regular banking at somewhere that offered competitive, um, rates on their money market savings and even had, you know, a, a pittance of interest on their checking. So, you know, I made that decision 20 years ago now. Yeah. And I've stuck with them because even though these some of these things look attractive to kind of eke out another tenth or two tenths of a percent to your I mean, I've not, haven't even heard examples extreme as yours and I still wasn't interested, but that definitely scares me off. Yeah, I mean, it was so easy to set up and then just yeah. the, the back end runaround like you said, it's not worth the worth the squeeze and definitely not. I had a I, my son uses CIT bank, which is another version of that, but, but you know, they did, they do the old bait and switch with like, they give you the teaser rate and then, oh, now the high interest rate only applies to accounts with this name, the savings micro builder, as opposed right. to the savings builder. You know, it's like, so it's just, I, I just ethically, I can't even get behind it. It's just like, yeah. they're doing that for one reason and one reason only. And it's, it just doesn't, it feels real icky. And uh, someone mentioned in one of the comments, like go to a local credit union, you'll get a, yep. a, a probably an even better rate um, than, than you'll get online any of these online banks. And, you know, everyone's mileage may vary, but I really appreciated being able to walk into my local branch and talk to somebody and know that I could get a balance when, when I wanted to, and I didn't have to sit for 35 minutes on hold just to speak to somebody and then get cut off. I mean, it's just like every possible yeah. thing ha happened with that transaction. That was just, ugh. 
Well, and this is such a good point, Eric, because, you know, we talk about the fact that cash is meant for expenses in the next 12 to 18 months. It should be liquid. Yes. It's got to be accessible. Yeah. But accessible means something. It doesn't mean like, well, hold on now. We're just going to lock this up periodically. And then, oh, our fix means within 30 days, you'll have the money back. That's days. not immediate access. Yeah, no. That's and, just and You know what? I tried to... Um, I mean, I did some research before this just about other options that were out there, and including your your bank that you recommended to me. Um, and it's just interesting to look at the terms and conditions that you're signing up for. Um, so one of the ones that I looked at was personal capitals, and they have yep. a very straightforward terms and conditions of what you can and you can't do. And I really like that. I haven't used their product before, but I'm like kind of considering it now um, just because I use all their other tools. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the terms and conditions for the Marcus account, pages long. It might be eight pages long. And like make one wrong move. Yeah. And you're giving, yeah, well, I mean, that, like anything, they're counting on you not reading it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't until, until I got in trouble. Hey, most of us don't. <laughs> People like personal capital cash. They also like ally. And that's yep. one that comes up Very popular. a lot. Um, but you know, rates can and do change quite often. Right. And they're going to be quick to change them down, but they're going to be slow to raise them, raise them up. But like you said, what's your time worth, man? A lot. What do you do with dividends in, in uh, retirement? Are you reinvesting or are you just dumping that into the cash bucket? No matter what kind of account, I have the dividends get thrown uh, into the sweep uh, fund. And then that way I can make the decision what to do with them. But generally what that means in my taxable account, that cash goes into my operating account because that's uh, you know refilling the cash bucket. Yeah. Um, right? The cat, it's already been sold, the, the tax is already there, just take the money and, and put it uh, in the operating account. In the tax deferred or tax exempt accounts, I still decide where to reinvest those dividends. I don't automatically have them be reinvested. So you like rebalance, a, right? Yeah, it's an yeah. opportunity for micro rebalancing. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, cool. I mean, you're a big dividend investor, so I know you. Oh yeah, huge! I only select uh, funds that throw very high dividends. Returns. You like the dividends when they show up, but you just. I'm happy when they show up, but yeah, I don't complain about them all for the them. No, I don't. <laughs> I'm happy when it's there. It just goes right into the uh, right in the cash bucket. Hey, there's one. There's one here which I wanted to touch on. Keep What's dollar that? cost averaging, or stop investing in my 401k and buy gold. Did we already talk about that? I mean, we talked about gold. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess we touched on pieces of it, but okay. uh, we don't have. To I don't know. I mean, for me, pretty simple. 401k, more often than not, has a match. So always put it into your 401k up to the match, no matter what. Uh, the second you already mentioned, and that is with rates, uh, with market performance dropping, right? Everything's on sale. You're buying at great prices. So why not keep uh, investing. And of course, individual circumstances will vary. If maybe your answer would be slightly different if you're really close to your number or you're really close to, I don't know, mandatory retirement, maybe your strategy would be different. But if you're in the accumulation phase, for me personally, I want to keep investing. 
Yep, that's what I'm doing, man. It's a, it's a great time to be investing right now. And we did actually did a video on why I'm not buying I-bonds uh, in the accumulation phase. And I break down all of the returns of the market, you know, following a bear market. And you'll, you'll be pretty happy to look at some of the returns there. And you'll be happy that you bought things at a discount because the, the climb up is swift and steep. And um, go look at the climb up out of recessions for something like gold. Yep. Yeah, it's very true. On the surface, the idea of holding cash is straightforward and largely not too debatable. There are a few people who say holding any cash is a crazy idea, even in uh, retirement, but that's not the common opinion. But what has been interesting uh, to see the responses to our, our previous episode is just that some of the different ways people approach cash and the generation of it to fund their expenses, right? And certainly people gave me a lot of different things to think about in their comments. And it sounds like you feel the same. Yeah, totally. I appreciate the comments. Keep them coming. Uh, if you're listening to this on the podcast, go check out the the wealth of information that our viewers are offering up. There's a lot of people out there that are much smarter than we are. And uh, it's one of the things that I like about making this show, Jay, is that, uh, you know, I feel like both you and I are always a student. You know, that's the kind of mantra that we keep repeating. And we're always learning things. And I know as I'm getting ready to... Uh, launch myself into Fi that I, I need a cash strategy and uh, it's it's nice to have other to hear what other people are doing. Join us as the conversation continues next time on Two Sides of Fi. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating it at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For show notes, resources, and links to the video version, please check out our website at twosidesoffi.com. Thank you.